Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we've all heard over and over again since uh, last Thursday that today is a historic day uh, in our history as a nation. It is the first time a president of the United States, former president, has uh, stood to face an arraignment on criminal charges. And of course, um, we're going to talk about that on the show today. And we're going to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene's role in all of this. She's uh, one of the most high profile file uh, supporters of Trump involved in activities surrounding his arraignment today. So we're going to talk about that with a great panel. But this is also a somber day uh, in American history. It was 55 years ago today that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. The events that led him to be in Memphis at the Lorraine Motel began several months earlier in February when two garbage uh, collectors, E. Cole Cole and Robert Walker, were killed in a malfunctioning garbage truck. They were crushed to death. And, And when the city of Memphis didn't take any action to try to correct problems that the garbage collectors had all talked about in their, uh, in various meetings, uh, uh, 1,300 black workers went on strike in mid-February. Uh, the strikes uh, turned to clashes with police. Demonstrators were tear gassed. Dr. King decided to go down to Memphis in, uh, actually, uh, uh, during that period of time, he left. Um, and, um, and, and there was a decision at, at um, SCLC headquarters about whether he should go back in early April. And there were many people who felt he should not be back in Memphis. Um, but he did go. He arrived on April 3rd. And it was, of course, on the night of April 3rd that he made the speech that has uh, been one of the most important speeches in American history. You know it well but it's worth listening to just a moment of it right now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. The next night, April 4th, as Dr. King stepped out of his room, room 306 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, he was shot and killed. Um, If you've never visited the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, I can't encourage you enough to do it. It's a chilling sight. They've preserved that section of the Lorraine Motel with the room in which he stayed. You can see the sign uh, for the motel, as well as many other uh, exhibits. It's, It's sobering sombering, and a remarkable uh, place to think about the legacy of Dr. King. So that's how I'd love to start the show that way and then go to Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And with all that in mind, let me introduce at long last the panel, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter from the AJC, my Tuesday partner on the show. Tamar, thank you for all of you really indulging me and just set a little setup to our show. I'm glad you're here, Tamar. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's amazing to listen back to Dr. King's speeches and to hear just how many of the issues he was talking about in the 60s are still being fought on the front lines today. 
That's exactly right. And it's how I'd like to uh, see this part of our conversation unfold with the rest of our uh, panel. Professor Andrew Gillespie, Professor of Political Science, Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, also with us. Hi, Andra. Good morning. Anthony Michael Christ, Professor of Law at Georgia State University. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Always glad to be here. And Fred Smith, professor of law at Emory University, is with us as well. Fred, this is a day when, uh, in addition to talking about the politics of this, it's good to have you and Anthony uh, talk about uh, the legal and political sides of this. So I'm very happy you're here, Fred. Thank you. I'm honored to be here on this day. Uh, before we, we do talk about that, let, let me go to something um, and, and that... Um, Tamar has already mentioned. Uh, today, there are any number of events that will mark this 55th anniversary of wreath laying uh, at the tomb, which is an annual tradition. There will be an event in the historic sanctuary of Old Ebenezer Baptist uh, Church and other things going on. But I want to read, Andre, something to you that, uh, that uh, Bernice King, uh, Dr. King's daughter, uh, has said just recently. She said, my father spent the latter part of his life addressing economic inequities within the African-American community. Fifty-five years after his death, we're still dealing with many of the same issues that have stifled our economic growth and left what seems like an insurmountable wealth disparity for the black community when compared to other ethnic, ethnic groups. And she could just as easily have added the health disparities that we're now more clear about than we were before a pandemic swept the nation. Yeah, I mean, she's absolutely right. When I uh, teach my African-American politics class and we go through some of the things that might give African-Americans a different political perspective mm -hmm. and different policy preferences, one of the things that we point out are not just income disparities, which are still true, but also wealth disparities. Um, and so in particular, before the Great Recession, we were looking at wealth disparities in black and brown communities that were about one-sixth to one-seventh what the total net worth would be in white communities. And then at the height of the Great Recession, those differences go down to about 120th. And so we're talking about net worths um, in black and brown households of somewhere in the neighborhood of $5,000, which was generous, actually, and white net worth being about $100,000. So those things have implications for if you get sick, that means you have less capital to start business. That means you might be a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, uh, you might be worried more about being able to send a child to college. There are all kinds of things that are wrapped up into that. And all of those things end up predicting life chances. I think it's also important to point out that uh, Dr. King's economic message didn't resonate as well as the anti-segregation message, right? People have a harder time conceptualizing mm. systemic and structural racism. And that and his anti-war stance actually made him deeply unpopular at the time of his death. So we have the myth of Martin Luther King that was created by his martyrdom. But a lot of people forget that they didn't like him when he was an anti-segregationist. And they liked him even less in 1967 and 1968. Thank yeah, you for that, no, I think I think here in Atlanta, there's this way in which we, um, you know, we, we celebrate more than probably most places in January. Uh, and uh, I think we mourn more uh, on April 4th. Um, and when thinking about April 4th, it's sort of impossible not to think about the economic message in particular, because he was fighting for the rights of, uh, of sanitation workers. Um, in terms of what we're dealing with today, I mean, right, I mean, as, as Andra notes, um, she said it better than I could. Um, the in, when you look at the income disparity, that's, I mean, that exists, but that's actually not where most of the action is. It's really the wealth disparity. And there's some places where it's particularly stark. A few years ago uh, in Boston, it was noted that the average Black family in Boston had a net worth of $15, period, $15 in, in Boston. They had to, uh, a few days after they first posted it, they had to do an, another headline where the headline was not a typo, $15. Um, and so some of that is kind of this, this intergenerational, right? Um, because the nature of wealth um, is that it is inherited. Um, some of that is also wrapped up in the housing market. So much of Black wealth 
is uh, is wrapped up in real estate, as is true for a lot of families. Um, but when it comes to um, black neighborhoods and uh, and issues of kind of, of white flight and a history of redlining and so forth, it's you know it's a complex mix um, that continues to perpetuate that. Um, and so it is it's important to uh, to remember that that's a very material way um, that we live with the legacy uh, of the past. Anthony. I often think about the mountaintop speech and one of the aspects of that speech, where I, which I find so compelling, is Dr. King calling on the nation and our institutions and particularly our courts to make good on the promises that are put to paper, um, namely the Constitution's right to petition, the Constitution's right to protest, um, the Constitution's protections for the right to assemble. And in 2023, one would think that we would have moved past some of those uh, basic questions of, of where our rights lie, but we continuously have those fights today. Um, you know, we, we look at voting rights, which are constantly under attack, uh, in part because Donald Trump and his allies look towards black voting power as inherently suspect. And, and there's a reason why Fulton County in particular came under um, the spotlight for Donald Trump and these false allegations of wrongdoing. Um, we see the use of the criminal law to crack down, even here in Atlanta, uh, un, you know, disproportionately on, on protesters and, and using the law to chill protests. We see uh, the state of Florida trying to erase history from our classroom spaces. Um, the law has been used in Florida and, and all sorts of states throughout the, the country to arm LGBTQ people and to deprive them of, of rights. And of course, last night we see the beginning of an attempt to remove right three legislators from the Tennessee state legislature uh, for engaging in, in a minimal uh, you know, uh, infraction of of house rules and in an attempt to essentially punish those three legislators for speaking out against uh, gun violence and 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 in favor of gun reform to protect children so that children are not murdered in schools. Um, so we yeah. really certainly have a, a a difficult a difficult moment that we're in. Um, yeah, we should. Uh, you, you, a lot to unpack there, which we're not uh, today going to be able to get to. But yes, three uh, Democratic legislators. There was a protest to get uh, to a call for gun uh, safety laws in Tennessee. Uh, some of the demonstrators got into the chamber last week, and three legislators from the floor were leading them in chants. And now there's an effort by Republicans uh, to oust them. Tomorrow, just to close this off. You know, we as journalists here um, are fortunate that we uh, have a, a, a very close view of some of the civil rights leaders that uh, were with Dr. King at the time, and, and they, are, they are unfortunately dying off. We've obviously lost C.T. Vivian, John Lewis, Jose Williams, um, so many others that I could name, and now uh, Andrew Young. Uh, is the one who we turn to as the legacy of what Dr. King did so many years ago. Yeah, for me, I was lucky enough to get to spend some time with, with John Lewis when I was on Capitol Hill. Um, and I always knew he was such a living part of history and just how much he was admired by folks. But you you didn't get to maybe truly see his impact until his death and just the outpouring that that you saw. Um, so I'm glad that that folks around the city today are taking time to honor um, Dr. King and yeah. Thank you all for, oh, Fred, go ahead real quick. This, this will be real quick, but it's really on my heart to say, um, and Dr. King is from Atlanta, but he was in Memphis. Um, the, a lot of the folks we're talking about, they went around the country and they fought for rights, um, because there's this outside agitator narrative that's back in our dialogue. Um, and I think it's important to remember where it came from. That statement's not going to earn me some uh, uh, joy from some of my friends, uh, but uh, but I do want to communicate it. Fred, we've talked about just that on this show, uh, when we've talked about the fact that some of those people who've come from other cities, other states uh, to protest uh, what they call Cop City, 
have been declared outside agitators, and we've done just what you did. We've had panelists who said that's exactly how the civil rights workers of the 60s uh, were labeled in many uh, communities, although there has been violence by some of those people who have come in, whereas we know that Dr. King led a completely nonviolent uh, movement. Last um, point about all this, uh, if you have never really listened to that speech, it is a beautiful day. Find it on YouTube. Listen to the entire speech. Anthony mentioned the things that Dr. King talked about in terms of the rights that all Americans are supposed to have right before he turned to saying, I've been to the mountaintop. It's an extraordinary speech from a brilliant, brilliant orator. All right. Look, uh, there's a lot to talk about now in terms of uh, Trump. This afternoon, he'll be in Manhattan court, a Manhattan courtroom where he will be arraigned. Um, we should get at that point an unsealing of the charges against him. Marjorie Taylor Greene is playing a big role in all this. Um, but um, and we'll talk about her in a minute. But Tamar, start us off um, with uh, what we've learned in a report from Yahoo News from Michael Isikoff, who always has a way to dig for information that other people don't have. Yeah, we saw a report from him last night um, saying that he's going to be charged with 34 felony counts for falsification of, of business records. And the reporting up until now um, has suggested we'd see upwards of two dozen, so 34 felonies, um, not necessarily misdemeanors. And Isakov also reported that um, once Trump arrives, he will not be put in handcuffs as other people being arrested are, especially people who are much more of a violent, you know, risk for violence or, or flight risk. He will not be placed in a jail cell. And at this point, it's not looking likely that there will be a mugshot either, I think, for fear that it's going to be leaked. Um, and obviously, this is a very extraordinary situation. Um, never in American history have we had a former president indicted for a crime. And so you have all sorts of logistical things to worry about, like Secret Service agents. So for that reason, the former president is not going to be a flight <laughs> risk. Um but it still is going to be an extraordinary moment in downtown downtown Manhattan today. Anthony, you may be able to uh, say this better than I can. It is my understanding that the way in which indictments are uh, handled in New York is that um, although it sounds like there are a lot of counts, felony counts, there's a way in which they do this so that it isn't necessarily that there are all those many, they, they have little minor uh, 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 lines of uh, the way an indictment is put together that accumulate, uh, but there are kind of minor moments that have one big picture. I, I'm not saying that very well. Well, I, I think there might be this misconception that the number of charges means that the, the scope of criminality is larger, right? So it could very well be the case, and right, we don't know because it is under seal. It could be the case that all 34 or however many there are, are all related to Stormy Daniels. It could be the case that there are other uh, hush money payments that are included in, in that count. It's really anybody's guess. We, we really just have to wait and see um, until the, the indictment is unsealed. And, and then we can then we can really discuss what, what's going on there. But it's, it's anybody's guess at this point. Fred, um, do we know conclusively that the indictment um, is all about hush money payments? Or is it possible that we could have some surprises in terms of other things that Alvin Bragg's uh, team has investigated and that have led them to get an indictment from the grand jury on other charges? Yeah, we just don't know yet. Um, and uh, prosecutors, very skilled prosecutors, uh, have a way of looking at a set of facts and seeing far more charges than most people would. Um, so a skilled prosecutor can look at one document and say, well, there's this is false statement. This is a false statement. This is a false statement and can choose if they wish uh, to, um, to to rack up multiple charges on that front. Um, and so we don't know if that's the kind of thing we're looking at or if we're looking at lots of documents and uh, and lots of moments. Um, you know, and we, we don't know how recent the most recent in, in, uh, instances are. So. 
Um, all of this is going to come uh, to light very soon. Um, and, you know, we know more than we knew yesterday, and we're going to know a whole lot more uh, this afternoon. Um, Andra, it's um, worth pointing out that Donald Trump, who has been using his uh, his social media platform, Truth Social, to attack the judge, to attack Alvin Bragg repeatedly, uh, after this report from Yahoo News, uh, this is what he posted. Wow, District Attorney Bragg just illegally leaked, in all caps, the various points and complete information on the pathetic indictment against me. I know the reporter, and so, unfortunately, does he, meaning Bragg. This means that he must be immediately indicted, speaking of Bragg in all caps. Uh, if he wants to really clean up his reputation, he will do the honorable thing as district attorney indict himself. He will go down in judicial history, and his Trump-hating wife will be, I am sure, very proud of him. Um. There's a lot of hyperbole there, which is not unusual for Donald Trump. I will defer to the lawyers on this panel about the legality of leaking. But, um, I mean, you know, this is some weird transitive property that if I know Istikoff and, and if Bragg knows Istikoff, then he, he obviously is the one that made the leak. We don't know that. And the details of the leak are not, or what we know from Yahoo, aren't particularly specific. So it'll rile up his base. We don't know anything yet. So, you know, I think you have to take what he says with a grain of salt. So, Andrew, let me uh, just uh, talk to you for a minute about the political one of the political in implications uh, that we've been hearing about a lot. Um, the Republicans who have been, you know, rallying around Trump, members of Republican members of Congress, uh, people uh, around the country who are conservative Republicans who want to remain in Trump's favor. Um, and one of the things they seized upon was this mugshot question and talked about how as soon as that mugshot is made, it's going to be leaked as a way to try to undermine uh, Donald Trump's uh, credibility. Um, he's not even going to have a mugshot, so that takes away one of the arguments that they're using about this political indictment. Well, I mean, so there are a couple of aspects to that story about the mugshot. First, it is a sign of preferential treatment, right? If anybody else was getting brought in, they would get a mugshot. Even, you know, some people have mentioned white collar criminals. So, you know, he's always talking about being persecuted. Some way he's being treated with kid gloves because of his status as a former U.S. president. And I think we need to acknowledge the privilege here since he's only going to claim victimization. The other part of it is, is, is that the mugshot, well, one, people are still going to make them. And now that we know about pics and other kinds of things and memes, there are still going to be like mugshot um, pictures that are going to go around. And a lot of people are going to believe that they're real. And then third, there were people on both the left and the right who uh, were planning on trying to monetize that. And I expect that they are still going to do so. So you're going to see liberals with their mugshot photos that would be like, see, told you so, or whatever kind of, you know, trademark they want to sort of put on that. And there were Trump supporters who were actually rallying and trying to create uh, paraphernalia that they were hoping to, you know, sell and distribute mm -hmm. in support of Trump, right? So it's all that's going to change is the wording that's under whatever image that they choose to create um, in and of themselves. So, you know, Trump is usually very good at getting ahead of marketing and trying to define himself and his opponents first before people have an opportunity to do that. And he's also really good at branding and other people have kind of taken that upon themselves uh, upon themselves to do it. And I expect that's going to be no different in this case, even though there is no mugshot. OK, in a couple minutes, I want to turn to our, our legal experts on the panel and talk specifically about the uh, theory behind Alvin Bragg's case. But what before we get to, we're, we'll do a break first, but before we get to that, Tamara, the judge in the case had been uh, asked by any number of media organizations uh, to allow cameras in the courtroom. Uh, overnight, he released a statement saying that wasn't going to happen. Um, what do you, how do you uh, uh, it, it look at that yourself? I mean, at least in the case of Fulton County, uh, media organizations, we have to request permission from Judge McBurney or whoever's overseeing um, a, a case in order to be able to take photographs, videos, to record proceedings. So it's similar, I guess, in New York. Um, we know from reporting from the New York Times and others that Trump was very obsessed with this concept of, of a so-called perp walk and what it might look like. Um, 
does it kind of damage his reputation among his supporters? Does he smile? What happens in all of that? Um, it looks like the judge wants to protect against all of that. It does seem like he's going to allow some photographers to take photos before the arraignment gets underway. So we'll at least have some images from the, the courtroom. But I think you, you see the judges trying to avoid the spectacle as much as he possibly can, although that's an impossible task. I do think Anthony and then Fred, and then we're going to get to our break. Um, this is a, a, a truly historic moment in American history. So I, I wonder about the fact that there won't be a permanent visual record of the event itself. Anthony and then Fred. I mean, on, on the one hand, of course, there's a high degree of public interest in seeing how this process unfolds. And because this is a former president, uh, you know, there is this kind of historical dynamic that people want a record preserved and, and that to be there for public consumption. On the other hand, this is a ordinary criminal trial from a, you know, that that's um, a defendant who is an, a, an average citizen. So you don't want to make an exception to the rule and abridge the process or to somehow taint the process just because Donald Trump is on the other side of, of the V. Fred? Yeah, that's what I'm kind of struck by, too, is um, that there are lots of ways in which, uh, even as he's claiming persecution, um, as Andre notes, we've seen different ways that throughout this process, he's just being treated differently in ways that uh, that are near to his benefit, including just how long all of this is taking, right? So um, different places are deferring to other departments that are referring to the Department of Justice. They're deferring to the folks in Georgia there. I mean, it, and and it's just kind of going on and on and on in a way that um, most people wouldn't get the benefit of. And we're seeing it again with the mugshot and so forth. And then there's ways in which um, I think people are kind of going out of their way to sort of avoid giving Trump fodder. And I don't know what to make of that. But, um, but you know, he, he says, I'm going to be arrested on Tuesday. I don't know, maybe he was going to be arrested that Tuesday. Then we see the, the the grand jury then like take this, this long hiatus, we see it then happen on another day. Um, you know, people, he's like, Oh, you know, people, his people are like, Oh, there's going to be mug shots, it's going to be terrible. And then there's no mug shot. Anyway, so either, um, there's this way in which his public rhetoric might be driving some of the decision making, um, uh, and you know, and I and I really don't know what to make of that. It's not a, I'm not saying it as a good or bad thing. I'm just noting it descriptively. All right, we got a lot more to talk about, but let's get a break out of the way. We'll be right back with more. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Fred Smith. Anthony Michael Christ, Andrew Gillespie, Tamar Hallerman joined me for uh, Political Rewind today. By the way, at 2 o'clock this afternoon, which is when Trump is expected to be in court facing arraignment, uh, NPR is going to do live coverage of uh, the entire event. I, I assume they're going to have a, a, somebody in the courtroom, uh, whether they, can, they can't record, but will be able to uh, come out, talk about what happened. So uh, you can listen uh, here at 2 Political Rewind's uh, repeat will be preempted uh, by that. So, uh, Tamara, I do think talking about the legal theory just for a moment is important, but we are, after all, a Georgia-based program. So before we do that, I think it's important to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene's role in all of this. Fresh from her appearance on 60 Minutes the other night, she's uh, probably already in New York. She is going to lead a demonstration of Trump supporters in a park right near the courthouse. Um, and yesterday, the mayor of New York City, who is deploying massive law enforcement presence to ward off any kind of violence that might unfold, actually uh, called out Marjorie Taylor Greene specifically. Here's what he said. We are the safest large city in America because we respect the rule of law in New York City. And although we have no specific threats, 
people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is known to spread misinformation and hate speech. While you're in town, be on your best behavior. Tomorrow, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene responded, delusional Eric Adams is trying to intimidate, threaten, and stop me from using my First Amendment rights to peacefully protest the Democrats' unconstitutional weaponization of our justice system against our top Republican presidential candidate, President Trump. Tomorrow. Yeah, you know, the the scolding from the mayor reminds me a little bit of a chaperone, like on an eighth grade field trip being like, you guys need to behave today. But I mean, it, it plays right into um, it plays right into Marjorie Taylor Greene's hand and kind of the message that she wants to send to the world. Of course, authorities have reason to um, be kind of nervous and wringing their hands about what's going on. No one wants to see a repetition of what happened on January 6th. And so um that's something that I think authorities in Fulton County are closely watching today, the scene in Manhattan, how security is going about its job. Because, of course, if Fulton DA Fonnie Willis decides uh, she wants to pursue an indictment against Donald Trump here, that will be a huge concern for law enforcement here. How do they do this in a way that keeps everyone safe, that that we don't have huge protests and rallies that um, could endanger people's safety here um, while still protecting people's rights to do that. Uh, as for Marjorie Taylor Greene, she mentioned she's holding this, uh, attending this rally in, in Manhattan. And later today, she plans to fly to, to Mar-a-Lago um, to be there with the president. I know he, or the former president, I know he's planning to give some sort of uh, address to talk about um, what went down today. Um, so something to watch for sure. Andra? I mean, so I have a lot of thoughts. First of all, uh, Green's rally needs to be peaceful. If it gets out of hand, then I think it ends up playing into Eric Adams' hand, right? It it, it reinforces a narrative. It confirms people's fears and suspicions about <sighs> supporters of Donald Trump being violent, or as she put it, you know, being, you know, eager to kind of egg on civil war in the country, right? There's also a big risk. She's organizing this rally. If a couple hundred people show up, right, it also seems to, it would also give a sense to show that uh, Trump's support may be waning. Now, the fundraising suggests otherwise, the polling support that we see sort of amongst Republican uh, primary voters, you know, suggests that Trump actually does have a lot of support. But if they end up with a rally that doesn't have a whole lot of people in it, that suggests that, you know, that there may be some weaknesses there. Um, and I think the also the big risk, and I think this is a risk that a lot of people have taken in the last couple of days, is rushing to judgment with very incomplete information about the nature of these charges. So, you know, I get why people think that this is all about Stormy Daniels, because that's all we've been told. But what we don't know, as uh, as Anthony and Fred have, have pointed out, is if they just started pulling on a thread and ended up sort of unraveling a whole bunch of other stuff that to a lot of people is going to look like a lot more than just a political witch hunt. And so now you've come out with these full-throated defenses of Donald Trump without knowing what the charges are. If it turns out that there are surprises in that indictment, right, I think the question is going to be what, you know, what do you look like and can you actually keep this uh, coalition of support together as a result of it? So just from a strategic standpoint, I've actually tried to be circumspect about some of the things that I, you know, have said about this because I don't know what's going on yet. And I've actually found it really surprising that there have been people who have been so willing to be so vocal um, about stuff that they don't know anything about over the last couple of days. And I just think that that's risky in general. Um, all right. Let me, if I may, uh, uh, Fred and Anthony, talk to you a bit about the legal uh, a theory behind this case. Um, there are many people who think that there really are reasons to believe this is a political uh, prosecution because they think this is a relatively weak case. Um, uh, and and it, it's interesting to me, uh, Fred, that uh, Cy Vance, who refused to bring uh, charges around the hush money payments when he was in uh, the office, on Sunday on Meet the Press, said, you you don't understand. He didn't say it in these words. But I didn't bring charges because the feds called me off. They said they're going to deal with this. And Vance said he was disappointed when the feds didn't do anything. So that takes away one of the arguments of people who say this is obviously a weak case because Cy Vance didn't uh, pursue it. But how strong or weak do you 
Yet, Anthony, starting with you, Fred, think this case may very well be. Right. I do think that was an important moment um, from the former uh, district attorney uh, for Manhattan. Uh, in terms of the charges, uh, so falsification of business records uh, is typically a, a misdemeanor um, unless the falsification is done to hide another crime. Um, and that uh, bumps it up to uh, a class E felony. So it's the lowest grade of felony uh, uh, in New York, you know, but a, but a felony is a felony, meaning that it's punishable by uh, more than uh, one year. Um, in terms of the strength of the charges, I just I, I know that this is anticlimactic, but I want to see the facts. Right? So, um, you know, part of why I have I've been pretty quiet about this um, and when when press have reached out is because I you know until. We actually see the indictment, you know, line by line, and um, that then we'll know how strong the charges are. Um, but and, and at this time, we just don't quite have that yet. Um, but the charges are certainly serious. Anthony, I think people in the kind of punditry world are conflating strength of a case and the importance, perhaps, of a case. Right? We don't know what the charges are going to be in New York. We mm. don't know what the supporting evidence is. We don't really know what the theory is behind the charges. Um, it could be a slam dunk. It could be a stretch. We, we really just don't know. But I think why people are perhaps more suspect of it is because they look at what's happening in Fulton County and they're looking at what's happening in the special counsel's uh, investigation in Washington, D.C., and they're seeing business document falsification versus attacks on the heart of democracy, right? And, and so there, there's just this assumption that, well, you know, one is exponentially more important than the other, and therefore the, you know, one is exponentially more stronger than the other as a consequence. And that's that's just not true. And I think we need to disaggregate, right, what might be more meaningful to us in terms of meeting out justice, preserving democracy, and, and right, protecting the integrity of elections on the one hand, and right, something which people get prosecuted for or all, all the time in New York, um, right, in terms of business documentation and making sure that they're adhering to the requirements under New York state law. All right. So uh, thank you for making it clear that it really is pure speculation about exactly uh, how strong or weak uh, the DA's case is. We'll learn more about it. And of course, on tomorrow's show, we'll talk about it uh, as well. Um, tomorrow. Let's talk for a minute, because it came up already, about uh, polling on this matter. CNN's poll uh, shows that uh, something like 60% of Americans approve of the indictment, uh, despite all this talk that it may not be a very strong case. Uh, of course, um, it's Democrats who approve of the, indi uh, the indictment with a 94% total, 62% uh, of independents approve, and of course, 79% of Republicans disapprove tomorrow. So whether the case itself is political or not, it certainly does reveal, as always, the partisan divide. Of course. And let's see if it moves the needle at all once we actually see the charges, especially among Republican primary voters, because that's where it matters at the moment. Of course, this could have a big impact on it in a general election if Trump is the Republican nominee. But what does this mean in a Republican primary? That's where we're going to be um, this time next year. That's the, the giant hurdle that Trump is going to have to get over. Sure, there are diehard supporters of Donald Trump, um, but what does this mean for a person who who might like Trump? He's he's all right. He was he was a good president. But I also really like Ron DeSantis. Um, does this give him enough baggage, the former president, that it causes those voters, those Republican voters on the fence to go for somebody like DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or whoever? Um, even if somebody still likes the former president, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to vote for them in a Republican primary. And at some point, there might be too much baggage associated with the former president. At the same time, he's proven to be so remarkably durable um, when it's come to everything that's been thrown his way up until this point. Of course, nothing compared to being indicted. Um, but his favorability ratings have been remarkably consistent. Um, so certainly something to watch. And I'll be interested to see how the polling changes, if at all, after these charges are announced among those likely Republican voters. 
Anthony, um, on our show yesterday, Edward Lindsay, a Republican, but certainly not a Trump Republican, suggested that we ought to be paying a lot of attention to the other New York case right now, and that's a civil case that uh, Gene Carroll has brought against him, alleging that Trump raped her in a dressing room in a department store in Manhattan in the Um, mid-90s. Trump responded when she first alleged that, that she's not his uh, type. And so that case is going to be coming up in the weeks ahead as well. Yeah, I think Donald Trump is under assault from multiple angles from from the legal system, both criminal and civil. Um, and and the, the truth of the matter is, is that for for a long time, Donald Trump has been able to avoid uh, responsibility and accountability. But I think what we've seen recently is that when he's under the microscope and he's actually called to testify and provide evidence, um, as indicated, at least to me, by some of his Fox News um, interviews as of late, he just kind of spills the beans and and says what he really should be saying. I mean, he's like the he's every lawyer's worst client, right? Like like that their nightmare situations. So I think it's it might be it might be a very damaging case, but I think he has a lot of legal troubles more broadly um, that that could politically damage him. And uh, very quickly, tomorrow we again pure speculation. We don't know how the timing of Alvin Bragg's case might impact how Fonnie Willis decides on the timing of whatever charges a grand jury might bring against Trump here, right? Yes, but it shouldn't make a difference. Um, We are talking about two entirely different cases having to do with wildly different issues. We're talking about entirely different sets of state laws. Um, So on paper, this should have nothing to do with how Fonnie Willis proceeds. Um, At the same time, as I mentioned, of course, authorities in Fulton County are closely watching what's going on in Manhattan. in certain ways, it is a bit of a dry run in terms of how security works, in terms of what the Republican response is going to be on Capitol Hill. You've seen Republican committee chairman threatening to investigate Alvin Bragg. I am positive I will put good money down that something similar will happen okay. should Fonnie Willis seek indictments in, in Fulton County. So, of course, they're watching closely, but this should not impact what they are doing. Okay, uh, we got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, uh, we're going to look at Wisconsin where a state Supreme Court election has become, uh, in many people's view, the most single most important election of 2023. We'll be back in a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew Gillespie, uh, let me set the terms for the Wisconsin Supreme Court election that's underway, uh, uh, will be underway uh, today. Uh, there's an open seat. Uh, the two contestants are Daniel Kelly, who is a conservative anti-abortion candidate. And although it's a nonpartisan election, he is basically a conservative Republican in his uh, viewpoints. And uh, Janet uh, Protasiewicz, who is a liberal uh, uh, Milwaukee County judge. Okay, so the reasons that this election is so important, first in the state of Wisconsin, is that uh, the the Supreme Court there has tended to make rulings that are very conservative, despite the fact, and they thwart often the uh, Democratic governor of the state, uh, Tony Evers, in terms of what he's trying to accomplish. Okay, with this election today, uh, we could be seeing whether Wisconsin will overturn its um, uh, anti-abortion status right now. Um, the, the state doesn't approve abortions right now. If Janet Protasiewicz wins, it could t- it'll tip the balance the other direction. And it'll also have an impact, perhaps, on redistricting because Republicans control the legislature and therefore district lines. And it's going to tell us something about how in play Wisconsin might be in 2024. 
Go ahead, Andre, take it from there. <laughs> sure. So uh, Wisconsin has a seven-seat Supreme Court. It's a 4-3 split with conservatives having a slight majority. And the seat that's up now is a conservative seat. So that's why kind of, you know, everybody is putting everything that they have into this race. So at least as far as the abortion issue is concerned, uh, when uh, the Dobbs decision overturned Roe versus Wade, the controlling law goes back to an 1849 abortion ban that was still on the books that, you know, now could be controlling in this particular case. And so the question comes up as to uh, whether or not a liberal leaning court would actually still uphold the constitutionality of that state law. And uh, Wisconsin has actually been front and center in a number of debates about voting rights. And I think it's also important to kind of keep in mind that uh, the state Supreme Court could actually be a bulwark, uh, you know, in determining sort of the outcome of elections. Like if a court were actually called to weigh in on who wins an election and given how close the margin was in Wisconsin in 2020, that's, you know, not a hypothetical <coughs> issue. This is something that very much could happen. So there are lots of reasons that lots of people have a stake in this race um, and the reasons why we've seen a lot of mobilization activity in the state. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the results of tonight's election are. Anthony? Yeah, I think that we've seen in the wake of the Dobbs decision, a renewed emphasis and focus on state constitutional law and building on rights and expanding on rights in state constitutions that go above and beyond the minimal threshold of protections that are afforded to us under the United States Constitution. And this is something in the abortion context we've seen uh, advocates use successfully in striking down South Carolina's abortion law. Uh, there have been some limited successes in uh, the Oklahoma Supreme Court lately. Um, in, and right, this is the same issue that we have in the Georgia State Supreme Court about whether or not Georgia's abortion law is constitutional under the state constitution. So, you know, not just abortion, but there have been successful state constitutional rights claims in terms of striking down gerrymandering in Pennsylvania. There's been some limited, at least temporarily, success in North Carolina on, on this front. Um, and so this is just kind of another battle in that more nationalized front and, and the attempt to expand rights under state constitutions. And that's why this is such an, such an important race. Fred, we should point out yeah. that the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin has basically been under the control of conservatives for, I think, since about 2008, which is another reason this is such a seminal election. Yeah, right. So Wisconsin is ground zero for partisan gerrymandering. Um, so few have gotten it as right, if that's your perspective, uh, in terms of, uh, of drawing districts to favor one's party as Wisconsin, right? So Wisconsin is a heavily divided state as we all know, um, but Republicans control 64% of the seats in the House and 67% of the seats in the Senate. Um, and uh, there have been federal court rulings before the Supreme Court stepped in that concluded that that partisan gerrymandering was a violation of the Constitution, uh, that it was viewpoint discrimination under the First Amendment, among other theories. Um, and so that would be a live theory in the state court system. Uh, and it, so it might, one of, one of the consequences is that it just might uh, return elections to the control of the voters rather than uh, to those who elect them. Um, Tamar, it's uh, going to be fascinating to watch this play out. It's one of the most expensive races. It is certainly the most expensive by a wide margin of any uh, uh, election for a Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin. Uh, but again, because of the abortion issue and the redistricting issues, um, we're going to really all be watching it very closely. But but tomorrow we've already seen in a number of states with popular elections around the issue of legalizing choice that voters tend to say we want choice. So whether Wisconsin voters agree with that or not, we'll find out. Yeah, exactly. One thing that's been really remarkable reading about this race is just how, um, I guess, honest the candidates have been about their views on issues, especially uh, Janet, uh, I'm going to completely butcher her last name, Protasiewicz, the, the Democrat running. No, that was uh, good. That was good. <laughs> she's been very upfront about how she's in favor of maintaining um, abortion access, which is not necessarily something you see, at least in Washington, when it comes to judicial candidates talking about their philosophies. In general, when you look at Supreme Court confirmation hearings or even for lower federal judges, people tend to dance around where they are on core issues. Um, and so 
we'll see if if voters in in Wisconsin will reward um, the Democrat, or sorry, the the more left leaning candidate for that, and even the Republican, yeah. or sorry, the conservative leading candidate. I'm sorry, see, even I'm messing it up. But he was on the the Republican <laughs> Party payroll um, for for 2020 2021. So it's it's kind of a very nakedly partisan race in a really unusual way. Andra, is it an overstatement to say that this will give us some clues about 2024, the presidential race? You pointed out how close past presidential elections have been in Wisconsin, I think decided by 30,000 votes, not just in the last election, but the last couple of elections. Um, you know, I there are people who are talking about this in sort of re- Republican com- uh, Party control of the state, but I think it would actually be very premature uh, to make those kinds of comments. Like I, I think about this in terms of, of of trends, and so one election really doesn't say a whole lot about what's going on. And this is also a special election, so you're going to have lower turnout in a uh, in an election that's being held on an off cycle than you would in something that's being held in November. The thing that I look to is what happened uh, in November 2022 in the state. So a state that really elects Tony Evers, also elects Ron Johnson to the U.S. Senate. So I I think (laughs) Wisconsin is purple. It's been purple and it's still going to be purple for a while. I'm going to need a few more cycles before I would say anything. (laughs) We're almost out of time. But Fred, I think you just smiled. I I can see on Zoom and Andre talking about a Ron Johnson winning statewide and a Tony Evers winning statewide. That's why Wisconsin is so in play. Absolutely. It's a heavily divided uh, state. Um, so, uh, and, and it's a place with some elastic voters. So people who will vote in the same election might vote for a person in one party and a person in another party, um, which isn't uh, true everywhere. So no, it's, it's fascinating to watch and a really important race. All right. Um, that's it. We are completely out of time for today's Political Rewind. Thank you to Fred Smith, Anthony Michael Christ, Andre Gillespie, Tamar Hallerman. Thank you for a terrific conversation today. Remember, 2 o'clock today, uh, we'll be presenting NPR's live coverage of Donald Trump in Manhattan Criminal Court. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with a whole new panel. We'll talk about what happened today and much more. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and please... Be good to each other. Bye.